Well, this is First Fruit Sunday, this Sunday, next Sunday, and the Sunday after that, as we look forward to Thanksgiving. First Fruits is all about giving our first and best to the Lord. God has given his first and best to us. And so that's the premise of First Fruits, giving him our first and our best. And this week we'll be looking uh, at that. You know, the basis of this entire year has been Acts. We've been in it since the beginning of the year. I have not, in the 12 years I've been here, been in one book of the New Testament that long. As, as I mean, from January to November. That's a long time. But the timing of the Lord was just so meaningful to me. Acts has been, I've gotten the most out of it, I'm sure. I hope you have too. And that's going to be kind of the foundation this year as, as here in November we look ahead to Thanksgiving and First Fruits Sunday, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And the whole idea that we try to, the emphasis of our lives uh, in November is giving God our first and our best because he's given his first and best to us. So I'll be drawing upon Acts. And I'll be drawing upon Acts this morning. But I want to, you recall uh, last Sunday we were in Acts chapter 19. You don't have to turn. Because today we're in chapter 29 anyway. I'm going to jump ahead. So uh, in just a moment I want you to turn to Acts 29. But we were in Acts chapter 19 and you recall that Paul had been in Corinth and he left Corinth. He, he sailed, he had a stop in Ephesus. And he left Aquila and Priscilla there, and then he went on. He made his way all the way up to Jerusalem to fellowship with the church at Jerusalem and report on his second missionary journey. And then he went up, he went down actually, but he went north to Antioch, which is where he had been commissioned and sent. But we're told that then he made his way through the hinterland, some of you remember this, and he made his way back to Ephesus. And while he's at Ephesus, we're told at the beginning of chapter 19 that Apollos is now at Corinth. You remember that? And then when Paul gets to Ephesus, and we just got the very, you know, we just stuck our toe into Acts chapter 19 to kind of test the waters there. But Paul is in Ephesus for the better part of uh, three years. And it's from there that he writes, we believe, 2 Corinthians. So I'd like us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because it's going to tie this uh, emphasis of, of what I want to kind of just call to mind from the, from the book of Acts. And I want to put it into focus as we think about giving our first and best because God has given us his first and best. And we're going to read verses 18 through 21. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. I started at verse 16. Jump back with me. Maybe I was supposed to read that. Sometimes my mistakes, the Lord In fact, all my mistakes, the Lord seems to turn to good. Somehow. That's how I see His grace so often. I am a constant source of the Lord's grace. (laughs) 
even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we, we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, through the Messiah, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating, that is, so to speak, reaching out to others through us. That's what he's saying, entreat. Entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I used to get the newspaper. I don't get the newspaper anymore. I, I still miss the... I like to hold the newspaper in my hands, but I don't anymore. But I, I get things from the newspaper in my ethereal mailbox on my computer or, you know, if you have an iPad, you can... And I get Harvey McKay. Now, I really like Harvey McKay's columns. Maybe some of you are familiar with his uh, column. They usually, if you get the newspaper, show up in the business section. They're syndicated across the nation. He's a very, very fine speaker. And uh, uh, he, he's always challenging and encouraging. I got one in my mailbox this last week. I always read them with interest. And the emphasis was on leadership. And in the course of the article, he wrote this. A sociology professor from one of the country's major universities spent his life studying leadership by tracing the careers of 5,000 former students. When he was asked, now I hope you're following this, when this sociology professor from one of the leading universities who has spent his life tracking the careers of 5,000 students, that he has devoted his life to inspiring on the topic of leadership, instilling with the understanding that he has acquired about leadership. And now he, at the pinnacle of his life's aspiration and pursuit, has been asked about leadership. And he's asked, how do you spot a leader? You you, sociological professor, leader of, of a leading university and leader of leaders, how do you spot a leader? And he said, quote, I've come to the conclusion 
that the only way one can determine a leader is to look at the person and see if anybody is following. That's really pretty profound. In fact, it causes me to realize that followers are the gauge of a leader. Not just numerically. Not just is there a follower or followers. How many followers? Not just numerically, but quantitatively. Because if they're really following, then they are going to, in some way, fast what they're following. Now, McKay continues, and he also emphasizes this in his article. The top ten characteristics as reported in management review of the findings of an executive seminar, four years of executive seminars conducted by Santa Clara University and Tom Peters Group Learning Systems, over 5,200 senior managers were asked over this four-year period through these executive seminars to describe the characteristics they most admire in a leader. Now just get your head around that. 5,200 executive managers, executive managers at the top of their field, 5,200 are asked, what are the top characteristics that you admire in a leader? Leaders, what do you admire in a leader? Leaders, what turns you on as a leader? You know what I mean? What, what inspires you when you see leaders? What gets your leader engine running? And this is what they said. Now, there were many answers, but here are the top ten, as, as I said, reported in Management Review. Honest. Competent. Forward-looking. Now, that may be office speak for a visionary, somebody, you know, forward-looking, inspiring, intelligent, fair-minded, broad-minded, courageous, straightforward, and the tenth, imaginative. I mean, this is what really caught my attention. McKay said, of all those top ten characteristics, only three really represent a leader because the others are what you want every hire, you know, every person that works at your company to possess. But these three are distinctive of a leader. One, forward-looking. Two, 
inspiring, and three, courageous. That leader has to see what the others don't see. Anticipate. Have a vision. He's got to know where he's going so that he can inspire inspire the others. And he's got to be inspiring. I mean, he's got to get their engines running. Obviously, you know, that kind of forward visionary looking or seeing has to be a way of kind of interpreting the world that says, this is the way to go. And the others, there's a recognition and acknowledgement. And they, they say, we're with you. We're behind you. And courageous. I mean, a person... I mean, there are all kinds of people that can get, get people to follow, but, but sometimes it's, it's kind of like, yeah, get out there in front of me. This is for you, but not for me. This is, these are things that you should stand for. Get them all excited, but... See, a true leader has to be the true believer. The one that's going to live for these things and stand for them, even if nobody's following And I ask myself this week, are those the qualities of Jesus? Forward-looking, inspiring, courageous? I thought Acts, the book of Acts, says yes. If followers are the gauge of the leader, we learn a lot about Jesus' leadership from the followers in Acts. I mean, he gives them his mission. Gives them his spirit. Man, if that isn't inspirational, (laughs) you know? I mean, that's the incarnation of inspiration. And courage. I mean, they are typified by boldness. And this is just isn't in some slap-happy label. I mean, these, this, these are life-turning, history-turning events in which their boldness, their willingness to stand up for this mission in the power of the Spirit is what really causes the whole thing to thrive and be real. But what really stands out is in fact the way the followers become leaders. Mission-minded, spirit-filled, courageous, pint-sized replicas of Jesus. Acts shows us that his mission becomes their mission. His spirit becomes their spirit. His courage, their courage. That's how Acts is written. 28 chapters. (laughs) <laughs> just in a way a a snapshot of what was happening and we write the next chapter we write the next chapter
Because His mission is our mission. His Spirit is our Spirit. And His courage is our courage. You know, when I think of His mission, His mission has, talk about forward-looking. His mission has you and me in view. That's how forward-looking is the mission of Jesus. It's always people-focused. Because, I mean, there is no redemption if there isn't any reconciliation. If there isn't any kind of restoration or right-wising of people's relationship with God. That is a mission that can capture our hearts. And the power of the mission of Jesus, which becomes the mission of His followers, is so powerful because we ourselves are the object of the mission. We're not selling a product because we're shilling for some bucks. This is our mission because we're the recipients of it. I mean, we have been deeply, profoundly touched by this love of God, this grace of God, this Jesus who came from God and comes to us and says, your fault, your wrong, your crimes against God are all forgiven. Not because of what you did, but because of what I did. And then, not only is this the mission that captures our heart, because already being a part of the mission, I mean, it's touched us at that level. There is just this very simple, I mean, this is just so simple, but this fundamental idea that I want you, my friend, my hurting neighbor, co-worker, my child, my parent, my sister, my brother, my friend, to know what I know so deeply. That's the mission. We don't talk about ourselves, we talk about Him. Isn't that how we realized that we were a part of the mission? And the mission hit its target in our lives? They weren't talking about themselves, they were talking about Jesus. And we realized it's just, I respond to Jesus. I don't have a mediator. There is no mediation with this mission. Each and every person. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians. So to speak, just later in chapter 19, he writes this letter to the people that he had left. And now that's where Apollos is ministering. And he writes this follow-up letter. And he says, we're in this very thing. Because He's touched us. And then of course we realize that from Acts that the Spirit empowers us. Jesus doesn't say, hey, go it alone. He enters into us through His Spirit. He takes up residence in us. And we've spent a great deal of time talking about that and how profound and significant it is to the whole entity of Acts. And then courage. I mean... 
We think of Peter, James, Paul as leaders, their boldness. If you're like me, you think, who am I? And I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a smart boy. I become smarter. I'm getting smarter all the time. My teachers always told me on my report cards that I was smart and performing well below my abilities. <laughs> I'm sure you don't see me that way, but you know what? I don't see you that way. I don't see what's going on inside, but because I know what's going in inside of me, I know that you're just like me. Although you don't maybe know that I'm just like you. And now you do. I take these songs that we sing here in the morning, how beautiful they are. And, and, and not, hardly a Sunday goes by. And you have to realize, um, I don't know, I have this theory that, you know, Hallmark cards or cards that you buy for loved ones on certain occasions, and I read those lines, and I, I picture some guy sitting at a drafting table, you know, with uh, the lights overhead. It's a really sterile, he's got a cup of pins and stuff, and he's just, i got to come up with a new slogan here because I, I'm on deadline. But that's not the way I've envisioned these hymns being created. I think they come out of a person's worship. You know, real poetry works that way. It comes out of the crucible of a person's own soul and life and experience. And so I'm singing them, and I'm remembering that. I'm realizing, you know, and I'm putting... It's just like when we pray in a small group or in public. Uh, maybe someone else in the group prays out loud, but... If you're doing it right, and maybe I need to tell you how to do it right, you're supposed to be praying with them. I don't know if you knew that. You're not supposed to take a vacation to the Bahamas at that time. But you're, you're letting their words become your words, right? And that's what happens when we sing. I'm, I'm trying to let their words be the expression of my heart. They're leading me through important paths of worship. And sometimes it's an acknowledgement of my sin. Sometimes it's an exaltation of God's glory and His greatness. And I've got to tell you, sometimes when I'm singing those songs, since I'm just like you, I don't feel worthy of what I'm singing. And just like that, my mind... You know, in my heart, I just, I, all of a sudden, I feel like I'm being a little fake because I'm expressing things, and I know that just yesterday, you know, or even earlier in the day, I wasn't kind of living up to what I'm saying to the Lord. Do you, do you identify with me at all? Do you ever feel like that? You know, like if you sing, if you sing, I honor you in all I do. That's a great line. I honor you in all I do. But as soon as I sing that, I think, Lord, I don't honor you in all I do. Sometimes I honor me in a lot of what I do. And it hits me. But then I think, Lord, I have this moment and my heart is all yours. That's why I'm here, to focus on you, to just let you have all of me. And you know, right now, even though I've been imperfect, right now, Lord, I'm, I do honor you in all I do. Right now. Now, if you are not getting this, I hope you will, because you need to start realizing that um, this is our moment to worship fully. And that's part of the reason 
Jesus died on the cross. You know? I mean, if we, can't, if we get stuck in the past or our failings and our shortcomings, then that, that becomes the object of our, of our focus and our attention and our thought life. And then if you're like me, you think, you crummy, scummy thing, you know? You are a worm. And I'm not alone. The psalmist talked that way too. You are a worm. But the cross says God loves you and he's taken care of all your worminess. Your worm essence, he's taken care of. And there's a reason for that. So that you might live unto him. Paul's talking about that. The old is gone. The new has come. You are a new creation. I'm a new creation. And when we're looking backwards, as we're wont or likely to do, because we're human and short in our abilities, we can get stuck there. But the cross says, no, you can't. Not if you reckon with the cross. Not if you realize what I've done for you. There's a new life you're to lead now. And to lead in Jesus, not just as an aspiration or an icon of Scripture, but a living reality in your life. He incarnates Himself in the Spirit. And that's really the battle of the flesh and the Spirit that Paul talks about in his writings. The flesh isn't just a part of you, it's me in my own strength, trying to do it in my own ability. And the Spirit is me in the power of Jesus Christ. Letting His thoughts fill my thoughts, not my failed thoughts. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, put off the old man, put on the new. And that's the reality of His followers that we see in Acts. And that's the reality that has to be ours when we write chapter 29 in our lives. I got my hair cut Thursday. Can you tell? Here. Let me take off my glasses so that you can see my haircut. Does that look nice? I hope she cut it well in the back. I haven't looked at the back. I went in Thursday morning, and since I go in early before work starts, we're just the only two there. I've been going to the same hairdresser for over 12 years, or for 12 years. And when I go in, I always go right to the same place. I know exactly where it is. I was there last time I was there, a month ago. And I go pretty regularly now. Funny how when you're young, you don't want to get your hair cut. When you get older, you want to get your hair cut. But anyway, I went and I sat at the stall. And she goes, no, not there. I'm in here now. And she, she has this beautiful little station. I mean, she's got a whole room to herself now. And so I had all kinds of questions. I said, how did this happen? And it was a whole God thing. She began to tell me, because we never talked about it. I've never even thought about it. Do you know how much it costs to rent a stall for a hairdresser? It's a lot. It's more than Shelley and I paid for renting our first house. That's a lot. In fact, I was tallying it up and I thought, wow, 
I said, how do you make ends meet? You've got to cut a lot of hair. You've got to dress a lot of hair. You've got to style a lot of hair. I get this image of you just working all week just so you can work another week. But it was exciting to hear what she's going to do because she's got all this space now. She had some shelves. She had it all dolled up. And she has this side job. And in this side job, I mean, she cuts and styles hair, right? But this side job is a line of products, health and beauty. And now she can put all that out, and it's like a full service. I mean, within that salon, she's got this special little place, you know? So she's telling me all this, and she likes to talk with her hands, so I have to remind her, don't talk with your hands, because I have to be somewhere. She's cutting my hair. Keep cutting while you talk. And she's so excited about this situation. I'm excited with her. And she tells me now that with this product line, she's going to be able to get this one device, this special device, and this will really make it a full-service thing. This device costs so much, you know, and she tells me the amount, and I'm going, whoa. I'm thinking about what it costs you to rent your space. By the way, she gets this room at the same cost as that stall, so it's a much better deal. It's a real blessing. But I'm thinking, wow, you got to get so much to rent your space so that you can continue getting money to rent your space to continue cutting hair, and then you'll be squirreling away a little bit for this device. And I said, so when you get that amount all added up and you buy that device, is it yours clean, you know, clear and free? And she said, oh, no, I have to pay a monthly rental fee. Because it's like a lease. And I was thinking out loud, so you tell me that you got to pay this big lump sum, you're going to have to save and scrimp to pay this big lump sum, and then when you get that together, you're going to have to, on top of that, pay a $100, I think it's a month or a week, lease fee. And I said, you know, I just... I don't understand it. I picture these corporate moguls up in their chrome and glass high-rises, and they're putting this on you, and I think, give us little people a break. I mean, I'm really getting reared up here, see? And she says, she says, oh, no. And she's defending them. And she says, it's incentive. And she keeps on chattering, and that's all, that's all I can think about. That word, it's like it's exploded in my head and my heart. I mean, I knew she, I just love this gal. We've become dear friends. But I, I thought, you are very wise in a way I hadn't fully grasped. And she keeps on talking, but I'm thinking incentive. I mean, it's not coffee that makes the world go round. It's incentive. Everybody has incentive for what they do. And then it hit me. I mean, these people are smart businessmen, and she knows human nature in such a way that she's comfortable with it. She realizes she needs incentive to be the businesswoman, to succeed. And really, in life, incentive makes us 
run longer, jump higher, go faster. Without incentive, we just lay around like a cat. And then I thought, whoa. Is God a bad businessman? Did he get it all wrong? Did he not appreciate human nature? I mean, think about it. The mission. That far-looking, far-reaching mission that becomes our mission. The spirit that becomes our spirit. The courage that becomes our courage is all based on grace. No incentive, is there? No monthly payments. No requirements. It seems to me that if God really wants to make you hop and work and really get on the ball for Him, He's going to start leasing His gospel to you. But that's not the way He does it. And that just seems so upside down to me, so backward and inside out. And I'm thinking, what is really going to rev up people? It's grace. Something has to happen in your heart and mind. Grace actually has to take root. Grace actually has to get there. It, it, it can't just go in the ear and, and run into a traffic jam in the brain. It's got to make its way through down into your heart and into your soul and into your being. Because when you really get grace, it changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see others. It changes the way you see the world. Nobody looks the same again. I mean, somebody will wrong you, injure you, insult you, hurt you. I mean, really hurt you. But grace, where grace has taken root, and created fruit. Grace will answer that and say, you know what? I've done that very same thing in a thousand different ways in a thousand different situations. I've done it too. And you know what God has done? He's completely eliminated that as an obstacle in His relationship with me. He doesn't pull back. He doesn't take home. He doesn't say, give me that back. He didn't say, hey, that was a lease. You didn't make your payment. Come back here. You can't have that. He lets you have it all. He didn't hold it against you. And you know what happens when grace really gets a hold of you? You realize, I can't hold back either. If the Spirit has overcome the flesh, you will not say, I can hold that back. I can withdraw that. I can hold the grudge. I can become vengeful. I can talk bad about that person. Treat that person like the, wait a minute, God didn't treat me that way. He loves me. And when that takes root in your heart, it changes everything. I've been reading Max Lucado's book on grace. It says, to accept grace is to accept the vow to give it. I mean, think about that. 
ponder that. To accept grace is to accept the vow to give it. I mean, could it be grace? Could you say you have grace if you don't give it? Can grace be held on to? Doesn't that change the nature of it? Doesn't it become something fossilized, something archaic, something unreal, something inhuman? To accept it is to also accept the vow to give it. And here's another thing he said. If our understanding of grace is small, our confession will be small. But grace that's great creates honest confession. That really strikes home with me. It's been a thought that's been bouncing around in my heart for a long time since I came here. In fact, in fact, at the time of communion some years back, it really hit me. If God is just a go-to guy, and some of the servers are going to get up now, so let's just tread water for a second because I don't want to lose you. If we think I'm a pretty good guy or we're comparing ourselves to others, I'm not as bad as that person. You know what we're doing? We're shrinking grace. We're not being honest with ourselves. When grace is great, our confession is great. And that is what we come to when we come to the bread and the cup. It draws us back to the point of God's greatest grace, the cross. And the beauty of this is that in the bread, we realize that He gave His life for us, this act of incredible love, a tangible, personal act of grace, favor. Not something that you have to purchase, but something that is given, bestowed in Jesus. And it causes us to acknowledge what God has done for us. How great is His grace. How almost unfathomable is the reach of His grace. But it doesn't end there. That isn't the end. This, this new covenant, this is flat in flavor and almost bitter like the death that was suffered. But this has flavor and sweetness because this is the new covenant representing our new relationship with God. Old man, new man. Former, today. This is where God wants us to live. This is how He wants us to sing. Not this, in the sense of being stuck in our past in fact, liberated. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, help us this morning to realize who we are, to reckon. That is, to calculate and come to the sum that is, the way it is, how much you love us, your great forgiveness. But Father, more than that, who you want us to be and who we are in Jesus Christ. This great mission that is ours, this spirit that is ours, this courage that is ours in Christ. 
because we embody the very impact of the mission. As we take this bread, we remember what you've done for us. And as we drink this cup, we position ourselves today and once again in the heart of your new covenant that we might live out this life and do it in Jesus' name. Amen.